0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. Why do we do the things that we do? Beyond survival and subsistence, what motivates us to get up in the morning and pursue causes of action that may or may not be exactly sensible? What makes us believe what we believe, join the groups we join, follow the rules we follow and fight the fights we fight? For explanations of this, you can take your pick from Marx, Freud, Jung, Ayn Rand, Nietzsche or Bobby, Don't Worry, Be Happy, McFerrin. Or you could read the new book The Status Game by investigative science writer Will Storr. Subtitled On Societal Position and How We Use It, the book looks at millennia of human development to argue that it's not sex, money or power that drive us, it's the status that sex, money, power and other less concrete goals confer upon us. It takes in everything from radicalization into religious cults or Nazism to the Lord of the Flies world of social media and it's very convincing. I've known Will for a long time, he's one of the most fascinating science writers around and he's here with me today. Hello Will Storr, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm all right. I'm not bad. So your book, this is quite a radical way of looking at society. Where did it come from? Did you have a late night sort of forehead-slapping eureka moment when you went, my God, I see how it all works now? I did have a bit of
1: a eureka moment, actually. I was in Vietnam, of all places. One one, one of the things I do, one of the kind of joys of not having children is I get to sort of go away and do my research in interesting places. And I was researching my book on storytelling. You know, you've got those books that everyone tells you, you've got to read this book. And so many people tell you, you've got to read it. You just don't read it because it just starts annoying you. And for me, that book was Sapiens. And and I sort of reluctantly read Sapiens. Mm. And the bit in *Sapiens* that everyone always talks about is is where he argues that Peugeot like, doesn't exist. It's just this. It's a story. Yeah. And I was thinking, it's not a story. <laughs> you know, what, what's the hero of Peugeot? What's the beginning, and the middle, of the end? You know, what's the midpoint of Peugeot? I didn't, you know, I didn't agree with him. So now I start thinking, you know, well, what is actually Peugeot? What I thought was actually, you know, what Peugeot is? It's a, it's a kind of human tribe. You know, we've evolved to, to we're a tribal animal. And, you know, everywhere we go, we make these kind of coalitions. And these coalitions have certain features. And it was from there, really. And then that became, you know, it's a status game. That's what Peugeot is. And there's also what a political party is and a cult is, and, and yeah, so it was a bit of a eureka moment.
0: I mean, it is quite important that this isn't just a book of pure theory. You don't pluck it out of the air. You do talk to a neuroscientist who describe the human mind as a reward space. And then you related to how you personally felt while you were wearing a Motley Crue t-shirt while wandering around the shopping centre when you were a teenager. What are we learning about how and why humans seek status, whether they kind of live in pre-modern tribes or in cities?
1: Well, I, I think the convincing thing for me was the stuff from evolutionary psychology, which looks at what are the evolutionary reasons why humans are what they are. And, and the kind of, you know, one of the sort of big fundamentals, ideas that's kind of driven the last few books, really, is this idea of getting along and getting ahead. That, mm. that those are the two sort of principal basic drives. And they're so fundamental. It's, it's how we do survival and reproduction. It's how humans do the, the Darwinian essentials. You know, so we're a tribal animal. If we connect with like-minded people, you know, we are accepted by our tribe and they like us. That's the one thing. But then once we've connected with our tribe, the jostling begins and the jostling for position begins. And in the tribes in which we evolved, the more status we got, the better food we got, the safer our sleeping sites, the greater our access to mates, the better survival and reproduction gets, the more status you get. So that's like a basic heuristic. That's a basic rule the brain knows. Just go for status connect with people, go for status. And it's such a sort of fundamental piece of human coding. And you, see, as I say, you see it everywhere, you step back and that is human life. We, we gather into coalitions and those coalitions, and within those coalitions, we compete for status. And then those coalitions compete
0: with other coalitions for, st- for status. Had you expected to discover what you did discover? Because some of the stuff you discover, particularly about the very, very different ways in which status is established in, in pre-modern societies, is... Uh... It's quite shocking stuff and to the extent that you can, even in the rarefied area of a podcast, quite hard to relate, you know, kind of sexual initiation rights and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a real eye opener. You know, when you dig into the anthropology and how kind of these, you know, what I call status games have been played around the world going back generations, you do see the kind of enormous variety you <laughs> that exists in, in, in human life. One of the things about status games is each group, each human coalition has a different, different you know, basic moral structure. And you can see there's a different ways for playing for status. If you do this, then you're you know an acceptable good person. If you do this, you're a terrible person. You go up and down that kind of totem pole. And yeah, I mean one of the tribes that I that I write about in, in Papua New Guinea, when the boys reach adolescence, they they go and sleep in the men's hut to be. Basically, how would you put it on a polite podcast? They have anal sex with the with the male elders because because the, the idea is the sperm imparts these kind of magical properties, and th- and that's seen as a morally good, virtuous thing for the for, for this tribe. So so, so you re- you really see this incredible variety there is in the ways that we play for status.
0: That's it's something that in our society would be seen as pretty much the worst and most status lowering for. Everyone yeah. concerned you know beyond taboo is in the society beyond you're describing taboo, yeah, yeah. And there's, there's
1: another one where when when the woman reach when a girl reaches adolescence or reaches sort of womanhood she's given as a gift to a kind of a i think it's a friend of the father uh, if, as a sexual gift and that's again seen as virtuous and a good thing to do and it's seen as an act of generosity that this man gets you know sleeps with this very young girl so it really does make you see this kind of our world in a different way. You see the kind of great variety there is in the ways that we decide what kinds of moral behaviors earn status and what doesn't.
0: It's interesting that you don't just talk about status in terms of purely as a group activity. You open, you open the description of a man who's imprisoned for decades after committing a murder when he was a child is released and then kind of effectively as undergoes psychological collapse because even though he had been imprisoned for a shocking crime, the status that he had accrued in prison is gone, and that almost remaining in jail was preferable, not because of the physical amenities, which are few, not because of any sort of material advantages, but because in jail he had status. He was educated, he was an asset to other prisoners, and outside he's just a nobody. Yeah, that's Ben Gunn. He's no, he's, he goes by the name Ben Gunn. He's a really interesting
1: guy. And you know, he had a very troubled childhood. I wrote about him initially in the Observer magazine. Listeners can easily Google the story without buying the book. And um, yeah, he and he, he he killed a boy, an 11-year-old boy when he was 14 and was sent to, you know, imprisonment at Her Majesty's pleasure. And he ended up being, if not the, one of the longest serving prisoners, because every time his parole he'd become eligible for parole he'd do something silly and 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 would get thrown back in and so the suspicion was people started campaigning for his release and there was a suspicion was that he was kind of doing this on purpose and then what happens is um he falls in love with a visiting english teacher and they have this sort of passionate affair in stationary cupboards and things like this all he's got to do is behave and and he gets to leave prison and he's going to move in with alex she had this life for him and he just he, he just Had to confess to it. I I don't want to do it. And what happened in 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 those decades he'd he'd been in prison was that he'd yeah he'd found status games to play. He was the classic jailhouse lawyer. Yeah, as a lifer, he says you get this. You're already at the top of the tree. So in prison, lifers have the top status. But then he was this also this prison lawyer. So he studied the law, you know, very closely, and was it was incredibly helpful to prisoners in their kind of arguments with the authorities, and would deliberately antagonise the authorities, and he would know often more about. the 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 rules and the authorities actually did he had very high status in that prison and he only actually left i mean alex what an amazing woman she persuaded him to start a blog and he started a blog called prisoner ben and that won an orwell prize and and only then did he kind of behave well enough to leave prison but but even that blog i mean he he wasn't enough and he he did have this sort of great collapse after Mm. he he left and and that was about 10 years ago i met him and I, i was just back in touch with alex and ben the other day to send them a book and i was very pleased to hear that they're getting married this year so so happy ending to that story although um, Ben has been banned from Twitter last (laughs) time
0: Twitter jail the examples you give are not all genuinely shocking and challenges to our moral framework some of them are uh, just fascinatingly strange tell us about the yams tell us about the giant yams? yams (laughs) <laughs> yeah so so
1: I i love the yams so, so it was one of these papers that you find and you're just like yeah oh, this is so good it was published in 1948 by an anthropologist called um, william bascom and he went to a little island in micronesia called pompeii and on pompeii um there's a status game yeah involving yams and, and and you know life there was like like everywhere very highly stratified it's quite hard to move up the the kind of status game In Pompeii, unless unless you grow a giant yam, (laughs) and so there will be regular. It's a relatively regular chiefly feasts. The grower of the largest yam would be declared number one at the feast, and everybody would be like, "Ah, you are number one." And so what you know what happens is the men of Pompeii just become obsessed with growing massive yams, and and it just became kind of the core of their, their culture. They'd creep out of bed at two in the morning and creep to their um, secret yam grain pits hidden in the forest. They'd cover their yams in, in brush and so nobody could see it and kind of tend to them. And, you know, this, this enormous system of moral etiquette bloomed up around the yams that, you know, such that you weren't even allowed to glance at another man's yams, even <laughs> the ones that were growing near their house that weren't for the competition. You see the power of the status game. Whatever we plug our status into, we, we tend to become obsessed by. And, and, and on the Island of Pompeii, there became... So obsessed with, you know, growing these giant yams that, that they became so big that it took 12 men to carry, carry the biggest ones into a feast on these special stretches made of poles, you know, so, 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 it, just, it's, it's so it, it tells me so much about human life and, and about how much we value status
0: what struck me is that part of it was that one of the main ways you'd maintain your status in the yam game is you don't go on about your yams too much. You have to be the first rule of yam club is don't talk about yam club. They, they yeah, have to yeah.
1: Part of the kind of cognition, part of the wiring we've got in our heads for playing the status game is that, you know, status is relative. So the more other people have, the, the more kind of reduced we feel. So if we, if we go in there kind of bragging and claiming status it's going to very easily uh, trigger resentments in other people. And you don't want to trigger resentments in other people because then, you've made an enemy. So they were very careful not to brag and to always talk talk their yams down, specifically because if they boasted, then they they would kind of trigger their kind of rivals to grow an even bigger yam and shame them
0: in the next feast. There you go. It it, it is yams all the way down. I I wanted to ask (laughs) you, obviously this is an experiment that you and I and everybody listening to this podcast is in. We are the mice in the maze on this one. Were there kind of status games from outside our sort of Western British social reality that resonated with you and made you think, my God, I'm doing that? I mean, obviously, even to the extent of, you know, on the front, it says, Will Storr, Sunday Times bestseller. That's a status thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. I mean, once you tune into it, you do start seeing it everywhere in the proof copies of the book. It was hilarious. They, They just had the status game in tiny letters and best-selling author will story huge letters is a sort of <laughs> gag which i think about 50 percent of people got and the other 50 percent thought what a dick you know? <laughs> but i think one of the interesting things sort of cross-culturally is the east and western Differences mm. and that in the individualist West, you know, we award status to people who kind of push themselves forward and excel individually. Whereas in the kind of more communitarian East, it's much more about the group and the status of the group. So, you know, there was one paper by a Chinese anthropologist which kind of explained about how the system of face, and one of the things that really surprised me was in the corporate world. In East Asia, it's common that if one individual in the group is praised, uh, is heavily praised, that they're embarrassed because they feel that they've brought the status of the group. You know, it reflects badly on all the other people because they've been picked out. So they'll often deliberately perform badly and to kind of restore their sense of kind of connection with the people around them. It was just so interesting to see how, um, again, the variety of ways in which humans play for status and how it changes both in time, but also across culture.
0: One thing that emerges quite clearly is that the that you know, the game can eat the player. You kinda of talk about characters who are abused at home or locked out in academia or otherwise lacking in status, create their own through through violence and through crime. This is difficult because you could use these arguments to make an excuse for the you know for violent misogynist insults for instance you know they've been robbed of the status they felt was theirs the he just cracked arguments it's quite an amoral world you're describing here isn't it
1: i don't really think it is i can totally i, I mean I've, i was you know nervous about the, these parts of the books strictly because of that argument but it's not really amoral it's just it, it, it's a kind of an explanation for morality morality is just it's a sort of game we play for status and that's not to say that it's when I say just, it, it means nothing. It means it's everything. It means status is right. is it, incredibly important to us. There are three main ways we pay for status. There's dominance, you know, we force it from people. There's virtue, in which we, you know, we, we, it's our moral world. When we do good things that other people think are morally good, we're rewarded for that, and that's a really good thing. <laughs> that's mm. a, that's a really good kind of. Culture, piece of cultural evolution and also success uh you know w- when we're skillful we do things so yeah i mean there is the chapter on incels and it's definitely not making an excuse for, for anyone or trying to justify anyone but it certainly is trying to explain this is what can happen when people are kind of chronically deprived of status really really bad things can happen i tell the story of elliot rogers who was one of these awful spree killers he was probably autistic which is relevant i think because it shows that he had great difficulty in making friends and making girlfriends and when he when he adolescence he just became obsessed with the idea that he wanted this pretty girlfriend and he was bullied at school and you know quite quite horrifically and and um was rejected by everybody this is quite a sad part because he, he wrote this um memoir before he did his spree killing which is quite an extraordinary document what was interesting in that was when you're reading his what happened to him you really think this guy is probably is a proper lunatic; he's absolutely insane, so what happens uh, he, you know he's seventeen years old and, and and he ends up telling himself this story and you know just to, as, as a kind of trigger warning, as it were, it, this is a really horrific story he told himself. he basically said that women are the cause of all the problems in the world because they repeatedly choose um, these kind of jock violent jock types to kind of procreate with, so his vision for the kind of a, a just future. Was that he would basically annihilate women, and except for a few that he'd, he'd keep in a laboratory kind of situation to kind of procreate via artificial insemination, sex would be banned completely. That's about as misogynist as you can get. It's a mm. horrific kind of worldview. And you read that and you think, this guy is a, is a one off, he's crazy and then you read about the nazis in the in the second world war and they were a rather narcissistic grandiose country for, for many good reasons they were you know they were incredibly advanced sort of technologically industrially until the first world war when they were kind of humiliated again and again and again particularly with the treaty of versailles they just like Elliot rogers told this horrific terrible story but in this case about the jews in its basic features, it's identical to the story that Elliot Rogers told himself, but it was told on the level of the nation and it led to the Holocaust. So when you see that, you think, Jesus, you know, this really is humans at their worst. When we're deprived of status and we're humiliated, especially if we're kind of grandiose in the first place, um, we'll end up telling ourselves a very, very toxic story about the people who we perceive to be our enemies. In extreme cases, we'll, we'll be driven to extremely kind of violent depraved acts. Far from being any kind of excuse on behalf of you know the Nazis or Elliot Rogers. It's an attempt to try and explain humans at their worst and how status is kind of really embedded in a lot of those acts we, you know, rightly see
0: as abhorrent. So I mentioned Marx, Ayn Rand and Freud at the beginning. Marx would say if you read your book would say no people are defined by their relations to the means of production status is, is for the bourgeois the, the economic base determines the social superstructure of which status is a part what would you say to our resurrected Karl Marx on that front <laughs> himself by the way this is a this is a guy who has a gigantic statue of his head as you know the final chapter in the book is mm-hmm. the parable
1: of the communists and i tell the story of of, of communism and it, it really is an extraordinary case study in in what happens i mean you know the communist project was to create this kind of kingdom of equality where life was all about connection. You know, I said before, it's connection and status. You want to get along and get ahead. And I, the communist vision was just kind of, it's all going to be getting along and no getting ahead. But it was just endless getting ahead in the communist world because you, you can't eradicate the craving, the need for status. During my research, I kind of found out that it was Plato that that was the first person probably to come up with this basic communist idea that everything should be shared and there should be no ownership, uh, essentially. And then his student Aristotle said, well, hang on a minute. It isn't kind of ownership that needs to be kind of equalized. It's the kind of yearnings of, I'm paraphrasing Aristotle here, but it's the yearnings of human nature that needs to be equalized. And I think that's the mistake the communists made. They thought it was all about private ownership of property and ownership of production. But actually that craving for status is part of who we are. It's part of our human nature and you cannot eradicate it, as is evidenced in the first few decades of the Soviet Union. I mean, it ended up being an incredibly hierarchical uh, society,
0: probably even more hierarchical than a capitalist West. I really enjoyed the book, but it did give me the shivers. This is not a kind of romantic vision of humans, but it's kind of good to know uh, the worst about us. I, I find myself asking myself, are the things that I've done also just been in pursuit of status? What sort of status am I getting by, I don't know, amassing a big record collection or keeping all my old concert tickets? Even doing these podcasts, is it kind of a search for a status that you know other things in journalism no longer can fare? Did you find yourself looking at what you've done and gone i am now kind of re-diagnosing myself here
1: no because i first came upon this idea when i was researching my book selfie and it was a it was a psychologist called bruce hood very well-known um psychologist and he said to me he said to me you know will why do we do the things we do once we've got enough money to live on it's all about validation that's that's just all about validation my immediate response was oh, that's such a cynical thing that's obviously not true but then i thought about it for about 30 seconds and i thought Shit, <laughs> you know, maybe it is. And so, yeah, and then you start feeling a bit embarrassed. Oh my God, it's just it, all it is is validation in his words or status. But actually, when you do the research, it, it kind of flips and you start thinking, well, status is actually really important. It's a, It's a fundamental human need. It's why we do so many of the of the good things that we do is, you know, it's why we, you know, donate to charity and, and come up with vaccines to cure pandemics. That status urge, you know, it leads to terrible things as, as we've just discussed, but it's also an absolutely fantastic part of the human condition. And so what I don't do now is go, oh, it's just status because it's actually status is really important. And it's just as important to us in a sense as, as kind of food and water. So that's that's the journey I've been on. I don't look down my nose at status anymore. I actually think,
0: well, is part of who we are. So if we can't fight it and we can't abolish it, we can't sort of just remove it from human behaviour, how should we best harness it? How should we best use it to produce the kind of uh, outcomes that we're looking for? That is an excellent question.
1: So in the book, I kind of delineate three general games that we play, dominance, Force and threat. There's virtue, you know, morality, and then there's success. We we prove that we're competent and stuff. And those games blend, so so you can see like an internet mob as a kind of virtue dominance game. They're using dominance tactics, you know, coercion and threat to impose their moral vision of the world. So that's not good. But what is really good is a is what I would call a kind of a, a, success, a kind of success virtue game. When we're trying to do good in the world, but we're awarding status for the achievement of specific outcomes, say AstraZeneca, the people who developed that vaccine, that's a success virtue game. They're trying to save the world from COVID, but rather than pinning their status on shouting at people taking ivermectin and and talking about horse tranquilizer, they're pinning their status on... I'm going to come up with a a vaccine that's going to save the world. Taking part in a marathon for breast cancer is a success virtue game. You're not just going on about it. You're doing something about it. So I think these are the games that are the most virtuous. When you
0: tie success with virtue, amazing things happen. So basically people should shut up about complaining about virtue signaling and understand it for what it is, which is actually advertising success and advertising good activity in a beneficial manner.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And, you know, and, and I always think e- even somebody complaining about virtue signaling, they are themselves virtue signaling. Yes. Because they're saying this is my moral world. We don't virtue signal. But everyone, of course, virtue signals. I mean, you know, it's just like we success signal by the products that we buy or the way we wear our hair, for example. The answer is to not just go on about virtue, to tie it to a kind of success based outcome. That's when you really change the world.
0: Will Storr, thanks for talking to me. Have we demonstrated our mutual status appreciation, do you think, in this conversation? I hope so. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure to talk. Thanks, Andrew. The status game is out now and it's got a proven quote from Danny Finkelstein and Helen Lewis on the front. So Will status is definitely assured there. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you'd like to do something for the status of this podcast and your own, then you could help us spread the word by forwarding it to three like-minded friends. They will consider that you have played the social game correctly and they will reward you with enhanced ranking. Don't forget the roundtable edition of The Bunker every Tuesday and now the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. There's never been a better time to follow us on your favourite podcast app, so give it a go. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofrenievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Dean tune by Kenny Dickinson... The Bunker is a Podmasters production.